Welcome to a special series on the Acquisition Talk podcast that gives you an audiobook tour of my research project titled Program to Fail, The Rise of Central Planning in Defense Acquisition 1945-1975. to I'm Eric Lofgren of the Baroni Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. You can find this book for free and over 1,300 blog posts on my website, acquisitiontalk.com. To introduce this series, I'd like to first give you some background on why this matters. The recent war in Ukraine and China's sable-rattling should make it clear, but the United States has entered a new era of strategic competition with great powers. Rivals in Russia, and particularly China, have not only started catching up to military technology in the United States, in some cases they've surpassed it. China in particular represents a dire threat due to its economic size and innovative capacity that far eclipses challenges presented by the Soviet Union during the Cold War or even Japan and Germany in World War II. The Chinese have a larger naval force structure than the United States, with 17 shipbuilding yards churning out military vessels to the United States 7. Just one of their yards has a larger square footage than America's 7 yards combined. The Chinese have beat us to the punch on hypersonic vehicles, are ahead on quantum technologies, and are adopting autonomous and swarming systems at scale. By contrast, the United States is plagued with high costs and is failing to move resources away from legacy 20th century concepts. Reforming the weapon systems acquisition process to become faster and more innovative must be a top priority. The Pentagon has to walk and chew gum at the same time. In one respect, industrial mobilization is the problem of our time. The United States is at a peacetime production rate, and it will take many years just to replenish stocks of munitions provided to a relatively low-end conflict in Ukraine. Simultaneously, the Pentagon cannot stand still. More outdated munitions and concepts of operations will not deter China. Rapidly fielding game-changing systems like unmanned surface vessels, collaborative combat aircraft, networked kill chains, and proliferated space architectures is important. But how did the Pentagon lose the technological edge with a budget several times the size of its nearest competitor and when it is embedded in the world's most dynamic economy? This audio series traces the rise of the modern system for acquiring weapons between 1945 and 1975. It documents how pluralistic methods of market-like competition were replaced by industrial-era concepts of top-down control. Technology developments became treated like reproducible goods moving down an assembly line. More decisions were consumed by an overly centralized bureaucracy, obsessed with perfection on paper rather than experimentation and rapid scaling of what works. This series provides a first-of-its-kind narrative to acquisition history that integrates two major themes. First, classical liberal concepts favoring individualism, markets, and rules-based order, which are crucial for understanding how superior results are achieved by a competitive process without the need for bureaucratic central planners. Second, 
Concepts from complex adaptive systems explain self-organization, emergence, and resiliency. This provides a scientific basis for the logic of trial and error experimentation rather than presuming that all the data is available up front for an optimization. While the narrative speaks to a new generation looking for disruption, it is equally balanced for the staid Beltway insider who values tradition, historical rigor, and realism. But first, I want to give you a sense of the broader arc of macroeconomic history that the Pentagon is wrapped up in. It has to do with the rise of the managerial class in commercial industry and government. From the time of the Industrial Revolution and up to the first half of the 20th century, innovation was led by the competitive spirit of individuals who built massive companies. Many even named their companies after themselves, like DuPont, Ford, and Sears. Presidents Wilson and Roosevelt represented a similar entrepreneurial mentality that vastly grew the administrative activities of the federal government. It was with this new scale of business and government at the height of the industrial age that the new managerial profession emerged under thinkers like Alfred Chandler, Frederick Winslow Taylor, and James Burnham. In their view, small, Bourgeois entrepreneurs could tinker on innovations and create the kernels of large enterprises, but they would inevitably be replaced by the managerial class that used enlightenment methods of scientific management. Production methods, costs, and even innovation could be objectively optimized for using data, planning, and mathematics. The visible hand of the central planner would replace Adam Smith's antiquated, invisible hand of self-organizing market behavior. These managerial leaders, while fine at optimizing routine production methods, are unsuited to move to new paradigms. The rise of venture investment in new tech giants over the past 30 years attests to the idea that small groups of individuals can build tremendous value, a rebirth of bourgeois capitalism. Consider the difference between the entrepreneur who builds a factory and the third-generation son who inherits the factory. Without that knowledge of building it from scratch, the third-generation son, who likely got an MBA, cannot react to new opportunities or environmental change. When the COVID-19 pandemic hits, for example, he cannot pivot the production line to masks or ventilators. The tremendous expansion of the military establishment and defense industry in World War II catalyzed an age of entrepreneurs. Famed names in the industry like Kelly Johnson, Jack Northrop, James McDonald, and others led military developments. Defense programs were also associated with government men who ran them, including Leslie Groves, Bernie Schriever, Hyman Rickover, Bill McLean, Red Rayborn, and many others. These organizations had about 20 or 30 years of steam before the managerial class took over. The leaders of the planning, programming, budgeting movement sought to optimize the portfolio of weapons through economic analysis, measurement, and control. Its leaders swept the Pentagon, despite never having built anything themselves. Robert McNamara, Alan Enthoven, Charles Hitch, David Novak, and Robert Anthony were analysts, economists, and comptrollers. They inherited big organizations and sought to direct them through systems analysis. 
no longer would individuals take responsibility for programs. Complex systems were run by a process and a consensus of bureaucratic analysts. Institutions led too long by the managerial class will stagnate and get competed out of the private sector. Even today's most successful tech firms might be overstaffed by 50 or 80%, making them ripe for disruption. Yet there's no equivalent of a market signal in defense. Those with the best innovation do not necessarily find funding or get fielded. There are many examples of defense officials resisting change. A classic example comes from Elting Morrison's Men, Machine, and Modern Times, where Lieutenant William Sims brought continuous aim firing to ships at sea. It increased gunfire accuracy by literally 3,000%. And yet the Navy resisted it for many years due to a confluence of how training, promotions, manufacturing, and doctrine worked. It took 25 years and a generational shift until the technology was forced on the Navy by President Teddy Roosevelt. The core concept of technological adoption is that it disrupts status and power. Unmanned and autonomous vehicles are a good example of this. While China is fielding an incredible variety of autonomous systems across domains, only the Army has an unclassified program of record for an autonomy system. It disrupts military billets, concepts of operations, and standard .milpf processes. It disrupts financial analysts who can't plan for it with historical data. It disrupts politicians who want to protect current jobs and district. The effects of all of this is rapidly escalating prices for weapon systems without rapidly advancing capabilities. Let me give you a short analogy to level set in your mind the structural problems of increasing prices leading to reduced force structure. In the years after World War II, a ticket to a movie theater cost only 25 to 50 cents. Fast forward 70 years, and the movie ticket now costs a whopping 10 to 20 dollars. That's a pretty big increase, but we've seen similar magnitudes for groceries, gasolines, and every other day purchases. Wages have also grown about by the same amount, perhaps a little faster. Now imagine if, rather than costing 10 to 20 bucks, the same movie ticket now costs you anywhere between $100 and $500. Sure, the seat now reclines, the picture and sound quality is better, and so forth. Still, forking over hundreds of dollars to see a movie? Something's got to be wrong, right? And yet, that's exactly the kind of cost increase that we've experienced in the acquisition of weapon systems. The difference between spending tens of dollars and spending hundreds of dollars is the difference generated by price growth at 5% a year and at 10% a year. Since World War II, the cost of U.S. weapon systems has rapidly accelerated. For example, the F-86 Sabre aircraft cost only $200,000 on average for each of the first 500 units. It dominated the skies over Korea after its introduction into operations in 1949. Five years later, the comparable cost of an F-100 Super Sabre was about $750,000, and in 1960, the F-4B cost over $2 million. Introduced in 1976, the F-15 cost $11 million, and 40 years later, the bargain by F-35A cost $113 million. Procurement costs for fighter aircraft in the U.S. have, on average, grown at roughly 10% each year. 
Compare that to prices in the economy at large, which grew at 3% annually. Over 70 years time, the difference is staggering. Whereas average prices have grown by a factor of eight in the economy, fighter aircraft costs have grown by a factor of over 600. In other words, it requires 75 times more real resources to buy an aircraft today. A similar story is repeated in ships, helicopters, munitions, land vehicles, and missiles. In fact, the cost of weapon systems have grown at a similar rate or faster than healthcare and college tuition, two sectors which receive a ton of public attention due to skyrocketing prices. For healthcare and education, higher prices haven't necessarily led to lower consumption. Their share of total spending has cut into other sectors. Healthcare spending, for example, has grown from roughly 5% of gross domestic product in 1960 to over 18% in 2021. Over the same time, spending on the Department of Defense fell from 8% of GDP down to near 3%. Because the economy has expanded, the diminished share still represents modest growth in real defense spending. However, with systems costs growing much faster than defense spending, weapons inventories have shrunk. The Air Force's active inventory of tactical aircraft fell from over 3,200 to just over 1,700 between 1990 and 2019. The number of bombers fell nearly 80%. A similar trend is apparent for U.S. Navy ships, falling from roughly 800 ships during the Vietnam War to over 500 ships during the Persian Gulf War, down to only 275 in the year 2019. As for the Army, it inventoried nearly 9,000 helicopters at the end of the Cold War. 20 years later, the figure fell to just 3,500. Higher weapon systems costs and lower inventories has been the price of achieving great systems increases in performance. The F-35A, for example, has stealth features, advanced electronics, and other capabilities that could make it worth the cost. The same is true, of course, for other high-cost sectors. Healthcare has seen substantial improvements in prescription drugs, surgical procedures, and much more. Similarly, colleges have more student life amenities and nicer lab equipment. Adjusting for these quality improvements is a difficult task, fraught with uncertainty. Yet for some weapon systems, higher technology content has not necessarily led to increased performance, as evidenced by the F-35's automated logistics system. While an exact index of military cost-effectiveness is unavailable, and indeed impossible to devise, recurring efforts to reform the defense acquisition process have made clear that its performance is unsatisfactory. In the minds of almost everyone involved, weapon systems cost too much, take too long, and when they're fielded, underperform in almost every characteristic compared to expectations. Past reforms, however, failed to turn the tide. Instead of looking for new solutions, reforms have oscillated within a narrow range of tried and true best practices. Experts largely agree on acquisition best practices dating from at least the 1970s, including requirement stability, realistic cost estimating, a fly-before-you-buy approach, and so forth. As a result, Frank Kendall speaks of acquisition improvement rather than reform. Norm Augustine concluded that management 101 is needed rather than new techniques. 
Harvey Sapolsky advised that we skip acquisition reform this time around. Many experts believe the problem exists not so much with acquisition theory as with the acquisition workforce. In a compendium of 31 expert views submitted to the Congress in 2014, over two-thirds pointed to the weakness of workforce training and incentives leading to poor execution of well-known best practices. In the consensus view, policies devised during the industrial era only need minor tweaks. What remains is simply motivating the workforce. One of the foundational works in the consensus view is the 1962 classic, The Weapons Acquisition Process, by Merton Peck and Frederick Scherer. The researchers present two recurring themes, the constant presence of uncertainty and the non-market nature of decision-making. The two themes are indeed proper for any discussion on weapons acquisition, and will in fact reoccur in the following sections of this series. However, this series applies a different understanding of uncertainty and the market, which favors a bottom-up over a top-down process, experimentalism over analysis, and a bias towards action rather than concurrence-seeking. Let's start with uncertainty. For Harvard researchers Peck and Scherer, uncertainty meant the degree to which contemplated outcomes are unpredictable. The relevant measures of prediction are cost, time, and quality. A distinguishing feature of weapon systems is that when a technical objective is identified, the estimated time and cost to achieve it might not even be in the ballpark of what it really takes. Uncertainty, therefore, was something to be minimized. Success was measured by achieving contemplated outcomes as planned. The treatment ignores important aspects of uncertainties. Are the program objectives the correct ones? Can technical direction be modified when new knowledge is gained along the way? How quickly can the acquisition system adapt to changing circumstances? When is uncertainty so great as to recommend a diversity of options rather than a single best choice? These questions stand outside the narrow definition of uncertainty or predictability in cost and time for a preconceived course of action. Fixing a course of action does make sense when technology development is viewed as a linear process. The prevailing belief at the time was that engineering solutions could be mathematically derived from the natural laws of science. All that remained was a rigorous analysis to find what was already present in the theoretical model. In this view, the world was a close-ended system of objective and deterministic phenomena. It made a small group of the best minds well-suited to make important decisions from the top leading to a requirements-pull approach to technology development. Over the course of the 20th century, evidence began to build that the Newtonian view of nature only worked for a small class of circumstances. In most cases of significance, predicting what will happen before experimental evidence becomes available is impossible. For example, U.S. scientists during World War II assumed that radar detection range increased linearly with frequency, leading them to a choice of 1.25 centimeters for aircraft side-looking radar. The choice was unfortunate, as later discovered by British scientists who performed realistic tests. 
It turns out the range was substantially approved at slightly lower and slightly higher frequencies due to the unexpected effects of atmospheric attenuation. It turned out that the function was not linear, as U.S. scientists presumed in their simplified models. The 21st century is now dominated by a different paradigm of uncertainty. We live in an open-ended system of subjective and stochastic phenomena. Small, even unnoticeable, prediction errors have enormous consequences due to nonlinearity. Complex behaviors emerge from simple, iterative rules, and in every case of significance, have been traced to bottom-up architectures, such as found in combinatorial innovation. For complex adaptive systems, uncertainty is not a problem to be contained. It provides opportunities for higher-level behaviors. The view leaves space for novelty and diversity. It suggests the wisdom of trial and error experimentation, of a technology push approach to complement the requirements pull. The result of complexity is that knowledge about what is likely to be successful is either unavailable or tacitly held by participants. Peck and Scherer deliberately defined uncertainty in the narrow sense because they rejected fuzzy notions of subjectivity. Yet we should not reject an idea just because it makes our problem more difficult. As thinkers like Michael Polyani and Friedrich Hayek understood, a large fraction of scientific and economic information cannot be articulated or aggregated into statistics. It is dispersed across participants. Indeed, if we accept that no one person has but a small part of the total knowledge required to make decisions, and that each one of them has overlapping, even conflicting views of technological or operational feasibility, then subjectivity is a fact of life. The problem then shifts to how local pieces of knowledge can then be most effectively coordinated to find out what is successful. By contrast, Peck and Chera saw uncertainty as a bug rather than a feature. As a result, they were committed to an optimization approach. Yet such analyses cannot discover anything that was not already provided in the assumptions. The abandonment of tacit knowledge limits discovery of new technologies by constraining the search to what is already known today. The antiquated view of uncertainty, with its emphasis on cost growth rather than genuine discovery of knowledge, continues to pervade the defense acquisition policies in the 21st century. The unpredictability of outcomes was seen by Peck and Chair as unique to weapons acquisition. Commercial firms encountered nothing close to the uncertainty of weapon systems. They pointed to the intensity of research and development as a good proxy for expected uncertainty. Even in research-oriented commercial industries like the scientific instruments and chemicals, the researchers found that R&D expenditures amounted to only 5% and 3% of 1956 sales. By contrast, firms participating in aircraft and parts industry put 19% of total sales to R&D. Times have changed, though. For the commercial firm Alphabet, which holds Google, R&D expenditures were 15.7% of sales in 2018. Many of their projects are moonshots, both risky and highly uncertain. 
Compare that to the largest defense seller in the world, Lockheed Martin, which safely spent 1.5% of its sales on surefire R&D. Modern tech giants also have an incredible scale to achieve major programs. Amazon's 2018 R&D expenditures, for example, rivaled the entire fiscal year 2019 RDT&E appropriation for the Army and Navy combined. Commercial firms in the 21st century don't just spend a great deal of cash on research and development. The nature of their business has changed substantially. No longer are commercial firms characterized by repetitive manufacturing of tangible goods. They no longer produce known things using known methods where a bulk of the value comes from deploying physical capital, routine labor, and raw materials. Business value is now the creation of intangible assets such as software, databases, platform design, supply chains, employee training, and business processes. These are precisely the qualities of investment that add value and also uncertainty to weapon systems. Over the years, commercial firms have charged ahead of defense firms in many important areas of technology development. Still managed by industrial era concepts, the Department of Defense struggles to keep pace with the rapid innovation happening in the market economy. It was widely assumed in the 1950s and 1960s that technology development required government funding to large, monopolistic firms. Famed economist John Kenneth Galbraith believed that the biggest firms would continue racing ahead in technology. Galbraith, like other industrial-era thinkers, could not conceive of small firms disrupting large incumbents. Yet experience has now shown cycles of small firms creating exciting technologies and growing rapidly only to be disrupted themselves by a different set of firms. In the 21st century, technological disruption has become a cliché. Firms try to even disrupt themselves. Clearly, uncertainty is not unique to weapons acquisition. The uncertainty associated with the digital economy has not caused market failures, but rather market innovations. However, non-market decision-making, characterized by central planning and resource allocation, remains important. Centralized control is still alive within firms. They are islands of consciousness in a sea of market exchanges. Yet even the largest firm is relatively small compared to the overall coordination happening through exchanges. The defense marketplace has even greater non-market aspects because the government is not only the regulator of industry, it actively participates in the industry as its only buyer. Back in the 1940s and 1950s, however, the government buyer was really fractured into multiple independent agencies that both cooperated and competed with one another. The Navy's Bureau of Ships relied on market-like exchanges with the Navy's Bureau of Ordnance for armament of its ships, while the Bureau of Ordnance competed against the Navy's Bureau of Aeronautics to develop missiles. Throughout the 1950s, government in-house organizations retained a significant technical staff. It helped them develop systems and evaluate the output of contractors. Even though government made more technical choices internally, indicating the non-market nature of defense, it was pluralistic and competitive. 
Central allocation didn't fully replace market-like exchanges until Robert McNamara's managerial revolution of 1961 to 1968. The in-house bureaus and technical services, crucial for generating the knowledge to become a smart buyer, were reduced in size and stature. Weapons acquisition focused on planning the total defense program from the top. Almost all detailed work was outsourced to a single prime contractor through a dedicated program office. While such increased use of contracts appears to have made greater use of market mechanisms, they were in fact an extension of the central allocation scheme. The entirety of the defense ecosystem then came under the control of a single resource allocation mechanism that continues to exist well into the 21st century, the planning programming budgeting system. This series attempts to fill a gap in the literature on weapon systems acquisition, whereas Peck and Scherer, and indeed nearly all other works, remain committed to an optimization approach of resource allocation from the top down, this series explores the concept behind diversification and selection approach focused on exchange from the bottom up. When exploring new reforms for the 21st century, it is first necessary to understand the history. The following is dedicated to resurrecting the debates that occurred between World War II and the 1970s, the period where the modern acquisition system grew into maturity. It finds how important thinkers dissented from the consensus view, including Armin Alchin, John Boyd, Hyman Rickover, and many others. This series is primarily a history and synthesis of ideas. It finds substantial precedent for an alternative paradigm to weapons acquisition that follows two related concepts. First, liberal concepts of individualism, property rights, subjectivity of cost, and rules-based order are crucial for any reorganization away from top-down allocation. Second is the multidisciplinary studies of complex adaptive systems, which provides a scientific foundation for self-organizing emergent behavior. Through the two concepts, an intuition is gained for why rivalry and redundancy are essential to technological progress. While the historical framework integrates many concepts, it frequently draws the listener's attention to the central role of the budget process. The output-oriented budget implemented by Robert McNamara under the banner of the Planning, Programming, Budgeting System, or PBBS, represents a major break from the liberal institutions of the United States. In the place of pluralism and exchange, the PBBS creates a central plan for future action. The PBBS remains the most important barrier to achieving the intended effects of acquisition reform. Taking another look at the traditional budget based on organization and object avoids the lock-in effects of central planning. It allows managers to take advantage of real options, incorporate intangibles into the decision-making, and pursue non-consensual projects, which as tech entrepreneur Mark Andreessen has found, are the only ones that have a chance of big returns. Perhaps most importantly, the traditional budget process helps align authority, responsibility, and accountability, which is currently dispersed across numerous layers of bureaucracy. This series argues that failure is built 
into the modern defense acquisition process. Attempts to detail financial plans by program outputs has corrupted the decision-making process. Hundreds of requirements are levied from all corners of the bureaucracy. Dozens of approvals are required to authorize funds. Years pass before programs can proceed, and once it does, plans become locked in for 5, 10, or 20 years into the future. The programming aspect of the budget is the ultimate source of rigidity in acquisition. Hence, the series is titled, Programmed to Fail. The first chapter of this series explores the administrative unification of the war and Navy departments in the years after World War II. It shows how the prevailing attitudes at the time favored centralized planning and reviled competition. The chapter features the first Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal, a man who found himself increasingly broken by his attempts to slow the encroachment of centralization. The program budget is discussed in the second chapter, proclaimed by its advocates to be the most important tool for unified decision-making. In 1954, administrative expert Frederick Mosher documented the implications of a program-oriented budget. Though he convincingly argued how programming presents many difficulties and should have been abandoned, he was later swayed by its proponents, at least in the special case of defense acquisition. The third chapter introduces systems analysis, a set of mathematical techniques intended to solve questions of program choice. Developed primarily at RAND, systems analysis attempted to predict future technologies and the cost of their achievement. A separate contingent of RAND analysts led by economist Armin Alchin countered that technological uncertainty was too great for a systems analysis to recommend the single best choice. Instead, he advocated a diversification approach to R&D, relegating optimizations to more well-defined areas of procurement and operations. The twin concepts of program budgeting and systems analysis were only partially installed in the 1950s. It wasn't until 1961 that they became the foundation for a defense management revolution under Robert McNamara. The fourth chapter examines the rise of the planning, programming, budgeting system and puts it into context in the broader debate on socialist planning. The chapter features insights from Friedrich Hayek on the problem of unified resource allocation, Karl Popper on learning by trial and error, and Harvey Sapolsky on the myth of scientific management. The fifth chapter explains how PBBS led to the demise of in-house technical staffs under the Navy Bureau and Army Technical Services. In their place, program offices with a single prime contractor put an emphasis on contractual arrangements. It features critiques of defense contracting schemes by RAND analysts William Meckling and Oliver Williamson. The sixth chapter focuses on defense innovation process. It describes the daunting prospect of starting a new program in the linear stage gate model of technology development. It examines European and Soviet innovation policies as described by Robert Perry and Arthur Alexander. A case study of the lightweight fighter program, led by John Boyd and the Fighter Mafia, is used to demonstrate how fragile and unlikely non-consensual developments are in U.S. acquisition. The seventh chapter follows John Boyd's work as it moved from aircraft design into complexity studies. 
The chapter explains how the reductionist view of science has been replaced by a richer understanding of the inherent uncertainty built into the universe. It explains how order emerges from the bottom up, not only in the economy and society, but in all complex physical phenomena. While military operations have started to reorient themselves to a complex adaptive systems view, the acquisition process remains trapped in the realm of linear thinking. Competition is the focus of the eighth chapter. It describes how economic rivalry acts as a procedure for discovering knowledge that wouldn't otherwise be available to a central planner. It features arguments by James Schlesinger and his mentor, Roland McKean, a founder of the PBBS who nevertheless concluded that centralization contributed to layered decisions, groupthink, and ineffectiveness. Also featured is David Sorgel on state plan technology and Martin Landau on high reliability organizations. The ninth chapter looks at the uses of cost analysis in the Department of Defense. For industrial era thinkers, cost accounting revealed the value being generated in the production process. However, as the economy moves away from reproducible goods and towards intangible asset creation, money outlays become less indicative of the opportunity cost of alternative actions. It features insights from James Buchanan and Frederick Brooks on how accounting data cannot be aggregated for use in specific decisions. The tenth and final chapter explains the role of culture in transformative economic activity. Meaningful decentralization first requires building back up the technical competence which used to reside within the government. Admiral Hyman Rickover is featured for his emphasis on in-house technical staffs and a long tenure for program managers. Otherwise, managers would not have the knowledge or incentives to exercise wise discretion over advanced technology developments. For more than 60 years, the pendulum of acquisition reform has swung within the narrow boundaries of industrial-era thinking. As Colonel Peter Eady quipped in 2011, the more things change, acquisition reform remains the same. The blame now lies with the acquisition workforce. However, we should consider after how so much time, perhaps it's not the acquisition workforce that should be found blameworthy. The following series will provide a missing narrative to the rich history of thought in weapon systems acquisition. Thanks for listening to this introduction to an acquisition talk series called Program to Fail, The Rise of Central Planning in Defense Acquisition 1945-1975. Stay tuned as new episodes are released. For more information, or if you'd like to provide feedback to me, please visit acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again.